Well, this morning, Frank actually asked, uh, asked me to do a, a certain topic. He said he thought it would be a good topic. And uh, since I always listen to Frank in everything, um, <laughs> if you don't like today's message, please see Frank. If you do like it, you can see me. It's okay. But, uh, yeah, he actually had a, it was a great idea. We've been talking uh, through the contemplative way for the last, uh, geez, several weeks here, a couple months. And I'm really trying to get a handle on what it means to live this contemplative life. What it means to be able to live a life that gets enough silence interiorly and exteriorly to be able to step aside from all that noise in our head, which maybe doesn't seem like a big deal uh, to those of us who are approaching this for the first time. But it's absolutely huge. And so we've been talking about this, but Frank said, uh, and then we brought in the fact that all of those thoughts, on that whole milieu of stuff that goes on your head, looked at as a whole, is sometimes called the false self or the ego self. And Frank said it would be good to talk about what does it mean or how do we go about actually identifying that false self? How do we find out what it is? How do we find out where it ends and the true self begins? And more importantly, for our purposes, how do you go about the process of dismantling or maybe better simply detaching from this false self? And so I thought that would be a good place to, to uh, tackle this morning. And I think that probably the best thing we can do is read a little bit from Thomas Merton uh, in terms of trying to understand what this false self really is. Thomas Merton, if you're not familiar with him, was a Trappist monk who entered the monastery in the late 40s and um, was a prolific writer and wrote through the 50s and the 60s until his death in 1968. And he is credited as being one of the few true spiritual masters that our country has produced. But he was also the one that reintroduced contemplative practice in the West. It had largely been lost, especially in this country here, uh, in, a, in the United States, and so he was reintroducing the contemplative way. He was all about you know, trying to bridge the connection from ancient Christianity into the modern era so that we don't lose that thread that was so important to early Christians and really comes right out of the New Testament itself. So he also introduced this idea of the false self to our country back in the 50s. And in a book called New Seeds of Contemplation, I put the first uh, paragraph or so that I want to read this morning in the bulletins and so you can follow along and then I'll continue a little bit, but at least you've got something there that you can take with you. He writes, Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the person that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside the reality and outside of life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. We're not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish most about ourselves, the ones we are born and raised with and which feed the roots of sin. For most of the people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to maintaining and expanding this false self, this shadow, is what is called a life of sin. Okay, so he's using sin there in, in the broadest possible way. So basically what he's saying there, if we continue to feel and to identify with this false self, if we continue in all of our choices, in everything that we do, 
to nurture it, to maintain it, to expand it, then we are living a life of separation. We are disconnected from people, from reality, because we are living in a bubble. We're living in a bubble that does not reflect the reality beyond. And that, literally, this life of separation is a life of sin. Sin not understood as simply breaking the law as we normally do, as being disobedient as we normally do. But sin understood as separation, as less than the perfect unity, the perfect connection that is God. God is oneness, is unity. Anything less than that is sin. If we stay inside this bubble of all of this manufactured stuff in our head, this image of ourselves, this image of reality, by definition, we're living in separation, living in sin. Now, to continue, all sin starts from the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my own egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life around which everything else in the universe is ordered. Thus, I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and the thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, feeling loved, in order to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness into something objectively real. And I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world as if I were an invisible body that can only become visible when something visible covered its surface. Isn't that a wonderful image? You've all seen the invisible man, right? You can only see him when the bandages are around him, right? We wind around our experiences. We wind all this stuff around to try to make something that has no substance appear real. To be a saint means to be my true self. Let me say that again. To be a saint simply means to be my true self to have found that true self. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I truly am and of discovering my true self, my essence, my core. Trees and animals have no problem. God makes them what they are without consulting them and they are perfectly satisfied. With us, it's different. God leaves us free to be whatever we like. We can be ourselves or not, as we please. We are at liberty to be real or to be unreal. We may be true or false. The choice is ours. We may wear now one mask and now another, and never, if we so desire, appear with our own true face. But we cannot make these choices with impunity. Causes have effects. And if we lie to ourselves and to others, then we cannot expect to find truth and reality whenever we happen to want them. If we have chosen the way of falsity, we must not be surprised that truth eludes us when we finally come to need it, and that confusion reigns. That's about the best you can do in terms of explaining what this is all about, what the dilemma is. Our fears flow into this and feed into this, and of course that's why we have a false self and ego self. That's why we maintain it. We think it is us. We think it is our means to happiness, to survival. How do we dismantle that? Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Traveled, the next quote down here. I love this. Mental health is an ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs. Think about that one for a second. The dedication to reality at all costs. But he calls mental health, we can call spiritual progress. We can call spiritual formation. If we aren't dedicated to reality, really seeing what is there, and not what we project. At all costs, whatever it costs us, 
And Jesus talked about having to be crucified with him. That's the cost. Letting go, letting die this false self. It's difficult. But contemplation, rites of passage as we've talked about, the hero's journey, spiritual formation, or even the recovery process for some of you who are in treatment and in recovery. It's all about shedding the skin of our false self. It's about examining our lives and finding out who we really are, who this higher power, this God of our understanding really is, and what's the relationship between the two. How do we do that? It's really hard to do that. And I wanted to read a little bit from Paul so Paul can show us how hard it is, or at least tell us how hard it had been for him. If you take a look at Romans 7, beginning at verse 15, this is a pretty famous passage. Paul's not afraid to show a little bit of his schizophrenia here. He says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Wow. Okay. The one thing that you can say, even if you didn't follow all of that, because it's pretty convoluted, is that he's pushed to desperation here. He's driven against the wall here. He is trying so hard to be the man that he wants to be, and yet he cannot seem to break through. Can't seem to do it. You know, so he's showing this kind of schizophrenic quality, you know, this, this complex nature. He's showing the difficulty, because really what he's talking about, he's banging up against a false self. He's banging up against exactly who he imagined himself to be, as a good Jew, a Pharisee among Pharisees, as now the apostle of Christ. And all the things that he imagined and imagined those to be, going all the way back to his childhood, are now the things that are keeping him from being able to be completely free, to do the things that he knows he wants to do. So he's struggling with this. He's struggling with the false self. And especially when you look at some of these verses, it's just so hard for us to figure. Verse 18 is a particularly difficult one. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And we read this a certain way, and we think we know what it means. And this verse has been used as a basis for Calvinism, which posits that we were born in total depravity. There's nothing good about us. But if Paul was a good Jew, and he said he was, and if we're going to take him at his word, which I think we have to if we're going to listen to his letters at all, then as a good Jew, he would not believe that there is nothing good in him because everything that God created was good. So he knows that there is goodness in So what is he trying to say? Well, I want to read this passage again, but now from the message paraphrase version from Eugene Peterson, because he does a really good job of kind of clearing this up. When you read this again, see how much more sense it makes. 
Back to verse 15. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Can't we all relate to that at some point or level or right now? Gosh, that is so real. That is so exactly the human condition. Because we bang up against this false self that we had invested our whole lives in. How do we get around that? The direct frontal approach is not going to do it. We're going to keep banging. Now, this letter, Romans, was written about mid-career for Paul. About halfway through his, his ministerial journey. But a letter that he wrote at the very end, and possibly the very last letter he wrote, was Philippians. And look what he says now at Philippians 4.11. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who is this guy? What happened to Paul? You know, I kind of like the schizophrenic crazy guy who is there, you know, because I can identify with that. But who's this guy? You know, something happened in the decade or so between Romans and Philippians. Something changed in Paul. He learned something. And the seeds of this, Philippians 4.11 and following, go right back to verse 18. And you'll see in chapter 7 of Romans, and you'll see... The connection here. You'll see the seeds. As Eugene Peterson translated it, I realized that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. See, his earlier focus was on doing right. His earlier focus was on doing all the right things that would add up to where he needed to go. By the time he hits Philippians, by the time, and he wrote this from prison, awaiting execution, by the time he writes Philippians, the focus isn't so much doing right, it's being content. It's not trying to change circumstances, change people, change himself, in order so that he could be content, feel free, feel connected to God. He just learned to do that, regardless of the circumstances, the work left undone, the imperfections that he still sees in himself. A completely different way of doing this. What he understood toward the end, okay, 
was that perfect performance is inconsequential to being content. It's inconsequential to the acceptance and the absolute love of Father God. He understood now that it was inconsequential to the circumstances, to the actions of others, or to his own. He could choose to be it, or he could choose to not be it. But it was within. He started to understand what Jesus was talking about when he said the kingdom is within. It's not out there someplace. It's here. It's now. And in the presence of him, in the presence of his Father, he can do all things in this presence that strengthens him. So, if we're talking about all of this, and we're seeing what what he's trying to get us to do, when we go back to verse 18 in in chapter 7, we're seeing how those seeds are there. What he's basically saying, I cannot do this. I can will it, but I can't do it. I'm not up to it. And if you are in recovery, you should be hearing powerlessness right about now. Because that's really what he's banging up against. He's realizing, I don't have the power to break through and do this thing. And the more I attack it frontally, the more I attack it face on, the more that I lose it. And so basically he's starting right at step one. Or better, step one started right where Paul was, because that's where it came from. And when he gets through to his verse in Philippians, he has basically run through the first three steps. What is the first step? What is the admission of powerlessness? It's about radical vulnerability. It's about radically just understanding our own dependence on a power greater than ourselves in order to get where we need to go because under our own power we can't do it. Not that we're victims, not that we can't choose, but our choice is to hitch our wagon to this power that is greater than than ourselves, which is exactly what Paul says when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's what step three is all about. Hitching the wagon to that power that's greater than ourselves. This is where he's going. The question, though, is how did Paul learn this? How did he get there? Now, first of all, he was driven to the point of admission of powerlessness. He was driven. He tried everything in his playbook. He used every arrow in his quiver. He did everything that he could possibly do and came up short. So he got to that point. The old programs are not working. So at some point, he must have decided to re-examine himself, to re-examine the programs and find out why they weren't getting him where he needed to go. You know, Socrates? Socrates is credited through Plato by saying, an unexamined life is not worth living. I like that. So many of us go through life just accepting what is laid in front of us, not questioning, not examining, not looking at the deeper things. And so we just are kind of on a treadmill, you know, in a circuit that seems to repeat behavior patterns, attitudes, keep repeating. We need to start examining. How do we examine? We can do it two ways. We can do it offline and we can do it online. And we talked about this a while back with contemplative practice and prayer. We talked about offline. You can set aside times, you know, outside of the normal flow of your life, for meditation, for centering prayer, for quiet time. You can do that. And you can learn that technique that will allow you to bring that practice of presence, because that's what meditation and centering prayer is, a practice of presence, into the daily details of your life. So practicing presence through everything that you do during the day is the online portion. And so there's those two ways. But 
Today, what we need to do is get a little more specific. What is it that we can actually do? How are we going to get out of this false self? Now, some of you have done this exercise with me before, but if I ask you, who are you? How are you going to answer? Who are you? Anyone want to throw something out? Who are you? Got a child of God? <laughs> I like that. Confused. Anything else? I'm sorry? I couldn't hear that. A million different things. Is that what you said? Okay. Anything else? Okay. Anything? The obvious things are that you are a son, you're a daughter, you're a husband, you're a wife, you are a parent. You know, we talk about the roles that we play. Some of you did mention those. We talk about the accomplishments that we've had. I'm a businessman, I'm a sportsman, I'm a fisherman, I'm a golfer. You know, All, I am my, uh, my children's mother. You know, that's an accomplishment. We talk about the attributes that we have. I'm a calm person. I'm an angry person. All these attributes. These are the things that we have to work with. When I ask people who they are, typically they come back in those three categories. Roles, accomplishments, and attributes. And for good reason. That's what we have to work with as human beings, isn't it? The roles we play, the things we do, and the attributes that we show. Here's the problem. Anything that can be taken from you is not your true self. None of those things in those three categories are going to survive probably your whole life even, but they certainly aren't going to survive death. It's probably why we fear death so much, because when all that stuff is gone, who the heck are we? We don't know. Unless we have gone through a process of examination to start to figure out who we actually are. And so these things are necessary for our lives. In order to live as a human being in this world, in the relationships, in our families, we need that ego. It needs to be a healthy ego, but we need the ego. We need to be responsible to our roles. We need to have goals and things that we do and the work that we love and the work that is necessary for the roles that we play. And of course our attributes and our emotions are everything that is connected to what it means to be human. But the problem is going to be if we identify with those things as us, as opposed to seeing them as separate, as something that we do, but there is a deeper us. How can we tell if we are identifying with those roles, those accomplishments, those attributes, that false self? Well, in recovery, we have something called the fourth step. And if those of you who aren't familiar with the fourth step, it's making a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. And so this is an offline way of going about it. To actually sit down and starting to look at what are the basic drives that drive us? What is it that's pulling us through? It may sound like it's just a catalog of sins. It's a catalog of failings, of defects of character. And I suppose it is that. But it's really much more. It is this examination of these basic drives that move us into predictable patterns. Like Paul said, it always is the same. No matter what I set out to do, I keep ending up in the same place. Why would that be? What are these drives? Henry Nouwen talks about the drives that Jesus had to put down in his time of temptation in the desert. The need to be relevant, the need to be powerful, the need to be spectacular. 
that symbolic threeness of temptations, those are basic human drives. We all want to be that. We want to be relevant in other people's lives. We want to matter. We need to control our circumstances because we're afraid if we don't, we're not going to get the things that we need. And we want to be spectacular. We want to leave a legacy. We want to be somebody, don't we? We need material and emotional stability, security. We're always looking for that. And all of these things are present. And all these things are necessary. We need these drives. But how do they play out in our lives? Remember Merton who said, if we are focused on the maintaining of this self, then we're living this life of sin. We're living this life of separation, of being less than. So let's take a look at these things from the point of view of the seven deadly sins. Have you heard of the seven deadly sins? The seven primary sins? Pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth, which means laziness, failure to launch, however you want to put that one. Take a look at each one of those. See if those are playing out in your life. Notice if those things are driving you. This is introspection. This is starting to examine, starting to take a look. When I was in training for the pastorate at the church where I was coming up, um, we had a, uh, a pastor who was in charge of, of all of us who were going through this, this training program. And he would pull us into you know, in rooms and we would meet and connect and talk and do all these things. And one time he set us down and he had us come up with everything that we didn't like about ourselves. And we had to share it with the rest of the group. So he kind of combined the fourth and the fifth step there all at once. But that was really hard to do. At the time, I couldn't understand exactly why we were doing it. You know, why did I have to air all this stuff? What was going on? But to take the time to go through and look at the things that I didn't like about myself. To start to look at how these things were affecting other people. What was going on? What was the drive? What was the result? Why was the pattern so entrenched? Why does it keep happening over and over again? Now, you can do this as a formal fourth step. And those of you who aren't in recovery, don't think that this isn't for you. The 12 steps really should be, they're the framework of this rite of passage, this hero's journey. And whether you do them formally as 12 steps, all of those points need to be hit. We need to admit our powerlessness. We need to find out if we believe that there is a power greater than ourselves that can return our lives to sanity. We need to know whether we're going to, through him, have the strength to do all things. And then we need to start examining our lives. And then we need to look and see the damage that we've done and make amends where we can. We need to continue this pattern throughout our lives to continue to look and see what does the day look like when we're wrong, we promptly admit it, and then we move back into making amends, building fences, improving our conscious contact with God, giving back, that's just the recipe for a well-run life. We need these things. But maybe you don't have the type of community around you where you can do this formal fourth step. But you can do it informally. You can find somebody to work with. You can find a pastor here. You can talk to us if you want to. How about just starting to journal? How many of you have ever journaled before? A few of you, journaling is a powerful tool. And if you do it correctly, you just sit, you know, have some quiet time, have a cup of coffee, and then just put the pen down on the paper, the pencil down, and just kind of like automatic writing, just let whatever comes out. You'd be amazed over time what you see. A lot of the things that we're talking about here will automatically come through in undefended moments when you're not really thinking about them, where you become vulnerable just by yourself and you start writing things out. 
How about a dream journal? Have any of you ever kept a dream journal? See, dreams are where this unconscious contact just kind of comes right out in all this figurative language. And when you wake up out of a dream and you remember it, to write it down, because you'll forget it within just a few minutes, can also give you a lot of insight into what's driving you. What are the basic fears that you're going through? These are all tools to help you to start examining what's really going on. What's happening here? And you know, the church has long recognized the need for this. I grew up Catholic. I know a lot of you did too. We had confession. We would go in and we would talk to the priest and we would tell him the things that we had done wrong. Now, as a kid, I didn't understand confession in this way. I didn't understand what it was. It was just an obligation. It was something I had to do. And as a little kid, I usually was trying to make up something that I could impress the priest with, you know, because what did you really do? Oh, I lied again. I talked back to my mom. But to really go through a regular process of looking at it, looking at your life, looking at the things that you've done that have hurt other people, that have frustrated your own goals, this is huge. And the Catholic Church has become more enlightened, at least in some parishes. They're calling confession reconciliation now, and you don't have to go sit with a screen. You actually just sit with a pastor like a human being, you know, the priest, and you talk. And, and there's, there's genuine human contact and connection. There's so much that is right with that. We need that. We've lost that in the religious setting. How are we going to put it back into our lives? If you want that with us, we'll connect with you. But find a way to start looking at what it is that's really going on in your life and seeing these patterns. Now, you can also do this online. Those are all offline ways of doing it, outside of the fray and, and the, the flow of your daily life. But online, start to notice what offends you. Every time you were offended, that's ego talking. Every time. Take a look at that quote. Where is it? Right in the middle there, um, by Thomas Keating. The fact that we experience anxiety and annoyance is the certain sign that in the unconscious there is an emotional program for happiness that has just been frustrated. Every time you're annoyed, every time you're frustrated, when you're offended, there is that deep unconscious program that you have in place. There is an outcome that you want. There's something that you think that you really need and you're feeling like that is being frustrated. That is being short-circuited. That is. So when you start to pay attention to that, when you bring that in to your daily moments, when you feel that spike of emotion, look at that for a second. Stop for a second. What is going on here? Why am I all of a sudden feeling jealous? Why am I feeling angry? Why am I envious? What's going on? And then you connect that with the offline work and you bring it together. You notice these things. Notice who you blame for things. And for what? Uh, Brene Brown has a great way of looking at blame. She says blame is the means of discharging discomfort and pain. That's how we discharge it. You send it out there because we don't want to feel it. I'll tell you what, if you're not feeling it, then it's not doing what it's supposed to do because pain is supposed to be the motivator to get you to move, to take a look at something that's broken and fix it. So if you just discharge it by sending it out into the ether, then you're not using it for what it is. Who do you blame? What do you blame them for? Take a look at those things. They're showing you something about yourself. They're showing you something about the false self. Every one of these practices is starting like a shape, kind of moving out of the mist. 
getting clearer and clearer, you're seeing the shape of your false self. You're seeing its motivations, you're seeing its genesis, you're seeing the patterns that it creates in you over and over again. There is that idea of the welcoming prayer that we talked about. When you are triggered, you stop, you accept it, because it is an emotion that you can't change. You didn't ask for it to come, you can't will it away. You just sit in it for a second, you welcome it, and then you pray that you don't act on it. Because even though we have no willpower, we have no say-so over the emotions that we feel, we certainly do over the actions that we take. And if we don't stop and take that moment, create that space between stimulus and response, then we're just going to act unthinkingly and go right back into separation, right back into broken relationship, right back into sin. And so to be able to stop, take this time, so all of these things are about awareness, about building awareness, looking at what you do, why you do it, offline, online. As you do this, it's amazing. I had the experience of my awareness catching up with me. I could look back 10 years, and I could still do that, look back decades and remember things that I did and said and situations, and I literally cringe. Any of you got some of those? Like, oh my gosh, how could I have done that? Crazy. And then after a while, I was thinking about things I did a month ago and then a week ago, and then I was walking away from the situation or conversation. It's like, oh my gosh, I did it again. And then there was that day, that red letter day, when I actually, as the words were coming out of my mouth, I was able to say, ah, stop. And then you could actually start to see these things coming. This is where I do this. This is where I do It's like your awareness catches up and then moves out ahead of you so you can actually react to things. You can head them off at the pass. You cannot just go there. But it takes this effort. It takes this time. It takes this examination that we need to do in some way, shape, or form. Now, if we're talking about recognizing and seeing the false self, this is a way through. But if we're talking about dismantling or detaching from it, then we need something more. And this is where the fifth step of AA comes in. This fifth step, admitting to God and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. See, it's not enough just to see it in ourselves. Now we need to share it with somebody. And I'll tell you what, it's hard enough to dredge this stuff up. It's one thing then to share it with the unseen God because, you know, he sort of lives in our head, right? But it's a whole another thing to share it with another human being. Now this is reinforcing and going to all our deepest fears, all our fears of insecurity, all our fears of unacceptability, to try to tell someone about all these things really just takes it into another zone. But it's critical. It's absolutely critical to bring this admission, this into the open with someone who is trustworthy. It's not just anybody and everybody, but someone that you deem trustworthy to actually let them in, to see you as you really are, to practice this radical vulnerability, to just all the defenses go down and they see you for what they are. And then you realize that it's okay. This is what changes everything. This is the exercise. And I wanted to read you just a little bit from... The reading of step five from the 12 and 12, this is the 12 steps in the 12 traditions. Look at the way that it's put here and see if this makes sense to you. It was most evident that a solitary self-appraisal, 
just doing this on our own. And the admission of our defects based upon that alone wouldn't be nearly enough. We'd have to have outside help if we were surely to know and admit the truth about ourselves. Starting to sound like Paul? Yeah? You know, I can do all things in through him who strengthens me. Hitching the wagon to the power greater than ourselves. Not always the unseen God, but the people around us, the people that we trust, the people that we choose to be vulnerable with become this power greater than ourselves. We'd have to have outside help if we were surely to know and admit the truth about ourselves, the help of God and another human being. Only by discussing ourselves, holding back nothing, only by being willing to take advice and accept direction, could we set foot on the road to straight thinking, solid honesty, and genuine humility. Yet many of us still hung back. We said, why can't God, as we understand him, tell us where we are astray? If the Creator gave us our lives in the first place, then He must know in every detail where we have since gone wrong. Why don't we make our admissions to Him directly? Why do we need to bring anyone else into this? At this stage, the difficulties of trying to deal rightly with God by ourselves are twofold. Though we may at first be startled to realize that God knows all about us, we are apt to get used to that quite quickly. Somehow, being alone with God doesn't seem as embarrassing as facing up to another person until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we have so long hidden. Our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical. When we are honest with another person, it confirms we have been honest with ourselves and with God. It's huge. The second difficulty is this. What comes to us alone may be garbled by our own rationalization and wishful thinking. The benefit of taking of talking to another person is that we can get his direct commitment and counsel on our situation. And there can be no doubt in our minds what that advice is. Going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. How many times have we heard well-intentioned people claim the guidance of God when it was all too plain that they were sorely mistaken. Lacking both practice and humility, they had deluded themselves and were able to justify the most errant nonsense on the ground that this was what God had told them. It is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance that they feel they have received from God. While the commitment or advice of others may be by no means infallible, it is likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. Our next problem will be discover the person to discover the person in whom we are to confide. Here we ought to take much care. But the real test of the situation are your own willingness to confide and your full confidence in the one with whom you share your first accurate self-survey. Even when you found the person, it frequently takes great resolution to approach him or her. Happily, though, the chances are that you will be in for a very pleasant surprise. Provided you hold back nothing, your sense of relief will mount from minute to minute. The damned-up emotions of years breaks out of their confinement and miraculously vanish as soon as they are exposed. As the pain subsides, A healing tranquility takes its place. And when humility and serenity are so combined, something else of great moment is apt to occur. Many people, once agnostic or atheistic, 
Tell us that it was during this stage of step five that they actually first felt the presence of God. And even those who had faith already often become conscious of God as they never were before. This feeling of being at one with God and man, this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt, brings us to a resting place where we may prepare ourselves for the following steps toward a full and meaningful recovery. And we believe that everyone is recovering from something. So that's recovery in the broadest sense. We all need to recover from the effects of the false self of our programming as children. We all need that healthy ego in order to live life in relationship here, to meet our responsibilities here. But healthy means that we realize that this false self, this ego self, is simply a tool for survival. It's a tool that we use. It's not who we are. And that distinction makes all the difference. We need to wake up. Jesus said that the goal of his way was freedom. If you follow my commands, then you're my followers, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Freedom is the goal of Jesus' way. Freedom from the false self. Freedom from the prison of repeating things that we do not want to do because we don't know any different, and we think this is the way that things are. Freedom that comes from truth about ourselves, about knowing ourselves, knowing our God. Remember Scott Peck when he said, the ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs is mental health, is spiritual health, is a healthy ego. If we are dedicated to reality, to not letting it be good enough if we are still stuck inside this bubble, to identify the false self through all of these means, talking about it with other people, is knowing the truth. To identify with the self-ego, to not know the truth, keeps us in the same separate space, in this place of sin. But if we can experience this radical vulnerability, this is the way to freedom. The freedom to love as radically as we are loved and we'll finally realize what that means, what that feels like, because we'll see it leading us. This radical love, this ability to stay vulnerable, to stay open, even when we get hurt, to make ourselves hurtable again, because we're willing to be open, we're willing to be vulnerable. And what Jesus tells us is that there is no other way to the Father than this. This is it. We either do it or we don't. We're loved no matter what, we're accepted no matter what. But our lives won't change until we finally experience along this way the difference between the false self and the true self and just let it go. Let it go. And to realize truly we only love because he loved us first. Let's pray. Father, we sit here and we thank you again, Lord. We thank you for everything that you've showered on us. We thank you for never, for a nanosecond, not thinking about us, not caring for us, not having us first in your priorities. It's an amazing thing to think that each one of us is your favorite child. Each one of us is your most beloved son or daughter 
we want to know that in a deep way that actually changes our attitudes and our choices and our relationships. So help us, Father. Help us to find within ourselves the strength in you to do the things that we need to do to begin this process and to find out who we are in you. The only thing that matters, who we are in you. Not alone, not imagined, but in you and in each other. Thank you for this possibility, this privilege. Thank you for expending so much effort to show us what it looks like, how it works, and how much we're loved. And we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.